Welcome to More Than One Thing with me, Athena Calderon, the podcast focused on non-traditional career paths, creative endeavors, and the ever-evasive multi-hyphenate. We live in a world today which encourages us to be the multifaceted humans that we are, though we're still subjected to antiquated pressures to follow a single path to success. But there is so much beauty to be found in our complexities, and I want to encourage you to embrace your full self. This is a podcast about taking the road less traveled, to find your passion and purpose while navigating the hurdles and hoops we all jump through on this personal and creative journey. I'm your host, Athena Calderon, author, interior designer, chef, recipe developer, entertaining expert, creative director, stylist, product designer, storyteller, editor, and certified oversharer. Does that sound like an insanely long way to describe my career? Well, it is, and that's exactly why we're all here. Every week, I'll be sitting down with another multi-hyphenate who I admire deeply to talk through their struggles, vulnerabilities, and eventual successes throughout their long and winding journey to where they are now. Because it's in other stories, I believe we can always see a little piece of ourselves. Today's guest is the wellness expert, activist, educator, television host, author, Earl Grey tea enthusiast, and extraordinary chef, Sophia Rowe. Sophia is one of those people who seems to have been born to break molds. Not only is she a master of crafting delicious and accessible recipes, but Sophia's honesty, candor, and the genuine joy she finds in everything from the perfect mushroom to cooking sweet potato dumplings is absolutely contagious. It's earned her a dedicated community of fans, as well as features in Vogue, Bon Appetit, Architectural Digest, and the cover of Cherry Bomb magazine. But it's on social media where Sophia really shines. She uses her platform to share far more than her culinary talents. She's a natural and compelling storyteller whose wisdom and expertise allow her to educate on topics ranging from agriculture and oppression to self-love and wellness. It's no surprise that Vice has tapped her for their new show, Counterspace, adding two more hyphens to Sophia's long list, television producer and host. Through Sophia's knowledge of cooking and storytelling, the show spotlights food insecurity, supply chains, racial justice, and the environment. For Sophia, this is deeply personal work. She's the child of two substance abusers, and Sophia grew up in foster care and experienced hunger firsthand, a part of her journey that informs her work today. She serves as a resource for others, helping them cope with trauma and never failing to champion her community. Sophia has also made a foray into fashion, collaborating with Tillit on a line of comfortable and stylish workwear. And she's currently writing a book slated for 2021, which will offer a window into her winding life. One that includes teaching herself to cook, surviving cancer at 23, 
becoming a personal chef, working in makeup, fighting for equality, and being a multifaceted badass. Part healer, part storyteller, part chef, Sophia Rowe is transforming the world of wellness to be more inclusive and delicious. I am so excited to welcome my friend and fellow Scorpio, Sophia Rowe, to More Than One Thing. Sophia, welcome. Hello, hello. Oh, I love it. Scorpios, unite. We've talked a lot about our Scorpio uh-huh. sisterness, haven't we? <laughs> it's a thing. It matters. It does. Well, let's get into your life, your mission, your work. You most certainly, like your work and your world defies definition, and you bridge so many worlds in what you do. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about what being a multi-hyphenate means to you. I mean, I've been thinking about this question a lot. Cause like, I feel like there's so much intersection in who we all are. Like, you're not just a woman, you're, you know, yeah, you cook, you're a sister, you're, you're an employee. There are just so many things that a person does. I mean, even just me, I am a black woman, but there's so much intersection, you know, and my, my life growing up was not happy. So I kind of just, I don't know. I just feel like, I feel like I've always been this multi-hyphenate. And then I think like, wait, why am I special? Like, I feel like we all are. I think it's just tapping into it. Yeah, I agree. We all have so many facets of what what our interests are, but mm-hmm. oftentimes we get pigeonholed into this idea, especially as a child, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, how is anybody supposed to answer that? It's impossible. Mm-hmm. But I always thought that you were supposed to just be one thing. And I'm so happy to be having this conversation, this forum to help people realize that, you know, you can be so many things and each of the things, even the things that sucked, bring you to where you are at this moment. And I mean, you have such kind of honesty and candor about your story. And I want to get into that, of course, but I've also read that you used to feel or used to categorize yourself as a liar and riddled with shame. And I'm so curious how you moved past that. Like I said, I, I grew up really rough. I was not afforded the privilege of linearness. I, I wasn't afforded like college and then you get the job. Like, no, like that was not a thing. Like I literally, I mean, my mom shoplifted my whole life for food because we wouldn't eat otherwise. I never met my dad. He died before I could meet him. So like, you just have to do what you have to do to survive at, at, a, at a point. I wouldn't wish my life up until like 25 on anyone. However, it's also my greatest inspiration. I was really angry about the life that I had. I was really upset that my life looked the way that it looked. And I had to really figure it out. Like, yeah, I mean, God, my first restaurant job, I lied to, and said I knew how to use a knife when I really didn't. <laughs> I got the job anyway, you know, and they quickly found out. In fact, I had lied. I didn't know how to use a knife, but I learned. But it, it really was a survivalness. And so I guess I look at it like clicking in from like survival into like, okay, like let me learn how to thrive. That's a that's something that didn't happen until probably I moved to New York. New York is a really interesting place because New York just uh, all kinds of people and you have access to them. You have access to all different kinds of people. And you would see like, oh my God, I'm not the only foster care kid or I'm not the only person who was on food stamps or, you know, like then you start to be like, oh wow, I actually don't need to be ashamed of all the things that I went through as a kid. I mean, I moved to New York almost 10 years ago. So about 10 years ago was probably when I was like, okay, it's my, I don't need to like be ashamed, you know? Yeah. And did you know at the time when you were a child, when you were dealing with, you know, your mother who 
battled substance abuse, did you know that your life, your mom was different than what the typical family looked like? Or was it just, this is what you had and this is how you navigated life? Oh yeah. I knew she was different. I knew she was different. I mean, listen, my mom is she's not a good mom, but like greatest inspiration. She's the, the quintessential like teaches you what not to do. My mom is really, she had really interesting ways of showing me that she loved me when she did decide to show me that she did. I also like, don't want to villainize this person. My mother is out there somewhere. She's still alive, I think. So like, I don't want to like make this, I mean, she did the greatest thing she could have done. She, she had me, she certainly didn't have to do that. I do think that there are so many things that happened in childhood that really inspire the work that I do now. And so in a weird kind of way, there's some gratitude there. I know that's so bizarre, but I do credit so much of what I do now with what I went through as a kid, for sure. Right. It was in those moments of being a child that you realized how food actually created some sort of connectivity, you know, or praise or appreciation or purpose. Oh man. Oh, like in a huge way, me and my mom getting along and like actually having a great relationship when it did happen, it like happened over food. I think too, like I just, you get, just get this servant's heart and you go through like weird issues of codependency that so many people who have substance abuse parents or just abuser parents in general, they get that sort of codependency. And so like, even that, even my codependency kind of like helped me out in the food way. It's, it sounds bad, but it, it did. It gave me that servant's heart. It gave me this sort of the one thing I, I really love doing is like making a meal. I don't really care about the like regalia around it. Like I don't, it doesn't matter if it's fancy. Like I just want happy bellies, full belly. Yeah. You know, like I know what it's like to go go to bed hungry. That's like not the best. That's like a really crappy feeling. And so even now it's like, that's kind of like all I want to do really. And again, I would not, I don't think I'd have it and frame it that way if it wasn't for my childhood. Yeah. Like how did your life unravel in a nonlinear way? Can you like summarize how you got here and how you came to embrace your past and the substance abuse and being in foster care and and to where you are now it really was the only option like the linear was like never like straight line was like never going to be the wave like um, that was never going to happen so mm-hmm. i think i think what sets people up for failure is this fear thing they get really like caught up in the fear stuff i was basically scared my whole childhood and you know it didn't kill me So I don't really have that fear thing. I'm not scared about failing. In fact, I understand it's going to happen on a regular basis. So I've got a great relationship with fear. I've got a great relationship also with my tendencies. So my tendencies to like maybe like self-sabotage because I don't feel like I deserve something or I don't feel like I'm worthy. I still battle with Listen, there's, you can't meet a more honest person now. Like, I mean, I, nobody sleeps better than I do. Like I'm, like, I'm the most honest. Oh, I love it. I, I feel like our only human responsibility is to tell the truth, which is like sort of antithetical to, you know, like Scorpios in so many ways are kind of like omission people. Like we'll tell you what you need to know, but I'm like full, open, transparent. In so many ways, that kind of transparency is also kind of chaotic and that matches my energy in a lot of ways. I tell people all the time, what do you, what do you got on me? What are you going to like make fun of me because I'm a foster care kid? Cause I didn't grow up with money. What do you got? You don't have anything on me because I already talk about it. And so I also think like exposure and sort of talking about my life and talking about my story is how I protect myself. For me, exposure is the best way for me to just like walk down the street and just feel good about myself. Like this is who I am. Like fight me. 
That's so interesting because I've walked a very different path than you have, but I'm so self-aware to a fault sometimes that like I want to call it out before anyone else calls it out. And I wonder if that's just like a defense mechanism. I don't know. I think it's so great to be able to know yourself, know your tendencies. It's also really great when you're talking about career team building. I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at. I know when it's time to ask for help. I understand that I cannot do everything by myself. And when we talk about like, more than one thing, I also think that's really sort of ties into that too. Like that's how you're able to really excel at more than one thing is being able to be like, man, that's a weird tendency that I have. Like, let me get some help on that end so that I can kind of bridge that gap and we can keep it rocking and rolling. You know, I think what helps you being honest with yourself really helps you live in your multi-hyphenate purpose, if you will. Yeah. Can you share when you began to define as a chef, like you went to culinary school, you were a private chef in Miami. How did you land there? You know, so many people lead with like their, their strong stuff first. I'm like, yeah. they're like, Hey, I'm soap. And I dropped out of college twice. You know, like I'm very kind of like that person. Like, yeah, I'm a state college dropout. I'm a culinary school dropout. I landed in Miami because there was job opportunity there you work for this person, you work for that family, you work for whoever, you know, and Miami didn't feel like foreign to me. Like I I remember going to Art Basel went like a field trip, you know, from Florida. No way. Miami felt safe in a lot of ways. And then I got a job offer. Someone was like, Hey, we want you to be a private chef in New York. And I was like, absolutely not. No way. And you know, that's sabotage. There it is like right there. Just this sort of, you are not worthy of ease, Sophia. Yes. Yeah. But there must've been this brazen confidence in you somewhere because you took the job. You didn't let that fear, you didn't let that no way stop you from the opportunity. I think I just really wanted to go to New York. I think it was like, I'll try it. <laughs> I was just like, I just like wanted to go. And I, I went and New York is so great. I fell in love with how not important I was. I thought, whoa, I, none of the shit I've been through matters here. Because look at all this other stuff. Everybody's been doing their own thing. It felt like this place that I could truly finally and sort of spiritually take my shirt off and like be who I want to be. And like, literally who cares? And so I, I tried out for this job, this family, and I got the job. I was planning for this like not to work out. And then it like totally like worked out. And I was like, crap, I don't even know how to move to New York. I don't even know what I'm doing. But I did it and it worked out. And I remember I lived on 7 Morton between like Bleecker and 7th Avenue. And it was like a gajillion million dollars for like an apartment that I was like <laughs> my first night. Oh my God, I'll never forget it. I, the taxi comes and I've got everything I own is in this taxi. And I tell the taxi guy, hey, can you hold on a minute? I just want to make sure my keys work. I leave everything I own in a cab. Oh my goodness. What an, like, uh, like what an idiot. Just to make sure my keys work. The guy tells me, he said, let me tell you something. I'm a good person, but you can't ever do this again. You can't. <laughs> and then he said something on the internet. He said, here's the deal with living in New York. You can either work for New York or you can make New York work for you. And I'll never forget it. I was like the moment I, was, I got it. I got it. So I became, I mean, I was always this very fiscally frugal person because I grew up with nothing. And so yeah. just remember being that person that did, I did not pay for convenience I just really had a New York experience. I would, I, I remember seeing a Mel LaRoe, Blue Note. Like I really just was like full blown studio sessions at Juilliard. Like I would just go to the Lincoln Center for nothing. Like full blown, I'm having a New York experience. And that's probably when I finally felt like I deserve to be here. Like I look at me yeah. doing this, you know? Oh my goodness. But even once you were here, life took you on a, another fork in the road that you didn't intend to get into beauty. I mean, when, how did that, how did that present itself? 
Well, I got super burnout uh, at being a chef, which happens. God, you just get tired. You do. I go to the Hamptons from Memorial Day to Labor Day every year. Memorial Day to Labor Day, and you're just working six days a week, and you're tired. Imagination isn't really part of your job anymore as a private chef, because then you get to where you're working with a family, and they're like, they just want that same fish dish twice a week, and the kids got you know the the kids want breakfast for dinner. You know, before you know it, you're just like doing. It's like you're just going with the flow, like the motions. You know, right? Do you did you feel just depleted and not you know not inspired? Not inspired. Also, just tired. I was working six days a week. I was working a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And I was also like lonely. I didn't have coworkers. I mean, I got. I remember just like a seven year old. One, I mean, it's like this kid I made food for one day. He's like, he's having a play date. He's like, this is my chef. And I remember being like, no, you little shit face. I'm not, I don't even work for you. I work for your parents. Like, I just remember being like, no, you know, and like, you love these kids. And you, it was very emotional, like very emotional to like, you know, you're, you're like, you're part of the family, you know, like you, you just there and you work, but I got super burnt out, way burnt out. So I was like, I'm going to just quit. Donald Trump had just become president and my birthday's like right that election. I'm, I'm the fifth. So it's like, I just was like, I'm going to take some money. And I went to Africa. <laughs> no way. Yeah. I went, to South, you. I went to South Africa. I went, to, we went with a guy that I barely knew and just did that for a while. And that was fun. And it was great. And then I came back and I was like, shit, I don't have any money. So I got to do something. So I was doing a little private gigs here and there. And I had a friend who worked at Milk Makeup. She'd just done a campaign at Milk Makeup. And I was like, all right, that doesn't mean anything to me. She's like, no, like we should like, they're having a big casting. I'm like, casting? Like I'm not a model. I'm not, I'm not going to that. She's like, no, like for talent, like it's different. And I was like, all right. So I go to Milk Studios and there's like 500 people in the room and everyone's beautiful. And I immediately, I'm out. I'm like, no, I'm out. I'm again, sabotage. I'm out. Oh. And this person walks up to me and go, are you Sophia? And I'm like, yeah. I am. <laughs> She's like, oh yeah, you're on a different list. You're in a different room. I go in a room. There's only 10 people in there. I'm like, okay, this is more like it. <laughs> so I go in and I met with Georgie Gravel who's one of the co-founders of Milk Makeup. And before you know it, we're just talking about like Manuka honey and like weird food. <laughs> I don't know. We were just talking and I wasn't right for that job. But then she started following me on Instagram and I maybe had like 15,000 followers on Instagram. Still doing the same old stuff. I was still talking about what I was talking about, but she ends up hiring me as like a social media manager. And I remember telling Georgie, Georgie, I am not qualified for this job. She's like, it's fine. Just don't tell anyone. I was like, okay. Oh my God. I love that. She saw something in you, but I just want to back up at this point on your social media, were you as forthcoming and open about your like The Sophia Rowe that we all know today, was that a part of your existence then? Or were you still finding your voice? Oh, no, I was. It was. That's why she was like, you should be a social media manager. Got it. I was doing it. I was still, you know, listen, this is like Snapchat days. There was no Instagram stories. Short format content was Snapchat. And I was a Snapchatter heavy. And, you know, like it was food stuff. Everything was very food centric, but I was chatty. I mean, I was as much, I mean, this was back when a video could only be 15 seconds long. I mean, it was like such a different time. Totally. But I was, I was chatty and I worked in milk makeup and that really like taught me about, gosh, I will never forget it. It's the funniest thing. I, day one, I remember this girl, Farrah Marcus. She's like, oh, this is so great. Like, I'm so excited to have you here and have help and you're so fun and just CC everybody in on a welcome email. And I was like, what's this? What is CC? What, what is that? I'm right there with you. What is this CC? Like that's how not qualified, but I was yeah. qualified. And now I look back at it and I was, you know, so much about 
what I was doing, I was doing all this like food photography stuff at the time, just like, you know, you buy a little camera and you like do what you can, you know, it was a different time for content, you know, there's no video, it just like wasn't the same. So here I am like working in, you know, social media in a makeup company. It turns out makeup looks very similar to food, you know, working with a great art director, Jenna DeRosa is just beautiful prop stylist and just being able to kind of like be there and like teach yourself Adobe Illustrator and teach yourself Photoshop and do all of those things. But can you unpack what it felt like being in this corporate environment? Because I really want to kind of share with our listeners what, you know, you were in this role, you didn't know what you were doing. You didn't know Photoshop, the Adobe suite. You didn't know what CC meant. You didn't know how to write a corporate email. What, What was the inner dialogue on a daily basis in your head? And how did you allow yourself to thrive and to push through rather than give up or feel not worthy enough. It was very hard. It was very hard. And it, and it also like, wasn't like only in our dialogue. Like, there were definitely people that were like, what, <laughs> you know, like there were definitely people that were, you know, and I was like chatty and like tried to always make people laugh. That's like a really important part of my personality. Like it's, it's very important to make people laugh for me. That's like a very, and that's also like trauma response. Like if you know a funny person in your life, they're very, very sad. And so I, it's yeah. always for me to tell people that like, it's either you either are funny or you have a family. It's like one or the other. I knew I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew if people liked me around, that'd be cool. Yeah. And it was true. I think I, I really do. I really believe that a, a big reason why I was able to thrive in that job is because I just, I cared about people. I always made people laugh. Also passive aggressive, that ain't my shit. I don't do that. <laughs> I came from a restaurant background. When there's a problem, you need to tell me or there's a break in the chain. So I remember there being an issue. There was this one girl, she just, you know, you need to go back to being a chef. And then I got, oh, so I got so freaked out. Like, oh my God, I'm not a chef anymore. I remember walking all the way to the Whole Foods on Delancey from meatpacking, buying the most expensive piece of fish I could buy, which was like not a lot. And like going home and like ripping it up in the kitchen and being like, you're still a chef. And then the next day I was like, yo, let's have a conversation. And it was, you know, we cried, she cried, I cried, but like, here we are not being passive aggressive and communicating, not like, I think there's this like idea, like in a, in a work environment that like emotions don't belong here. Like what that, what emotions are how we're able to make informed decisions on makeup. Makeup is emotional. It's beautiful. It's art. Like this is the place for emotions. I just felt like it's okay for us to have an emotional moment as women in the workplace and not get along. And then like we make up and like, now we're cool. Like even years later, I'm still close with this person. And I know it's because I took my kitchen stuff and I brought it into a corporate environment. And so many people would probably feel like that is crazy, but not everything needs to be so conflicty and weird and like the weird passive aggressive emails and like, ugh, it's just gross. I, even to this day, I'm like, I yuck, yuck, yuck. It was very hard working in that environment for sure. Interesting. But obviously that gave you certain tools that you use to this day. Oh my gosh. Totally. Knowing like Adobe and the Photoshop. And also like outside of that, I, I implement those very things. I am not scared to say, you know what? I don't have the emotional equity for this right now, but thank you so much for this email. I'm not scared to share in emails. I had the craziest morning. I am not feeling okay, you know? And it's great because almost every single time the response back is like, wow, what a relief. You're not the only one. Me, you know, like, I just want to break that barrier a little bit. Like this idea of like being on top of your emails is not necessarily productive. I challenge that. Like, I don't think you can be creative. The the biggest problems in the world are going to require a lot of revolution and revolutionary thinking. And you cannot 
you cannot become revolutionary without imagination and imagination has nothing to do with your email queue. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I'm trying to like do something awesome, you know, like I, I'm sorry that I didn't even capture your email. Like I was doing the other work that's required. Don't confuse yourself into thinking that that's the productivity the emails and the the back and forth contact. It's very important to go outside, view it yourself. That's how you become someone who feels comfortable in your multi-hyphenateness. I couldn't be comfortable calling myself a skateboarder if I didn't go outside and skateboard. So I go outside and skateboard. And so now I'm a skateboarder. (laughs) So cute. So cute. I just want to see you in a jumpsuit, riding your skateboard, maybe even wearing it backwards. Maybe. Maybe. Not that good yet, but you know. Oh my goodness. So, you know, you just talked about imagination and I have this amazing quote that says, I feel like we're so bogged down that we forget to give ourselves time for imagination. And that reminds me of your Instagram that I saw yesterday when you walked across the Brooklyn Bridge or Manhattan Bridge or Williamsburg Bridge, whatever it is, backwards, just because you find it so essential to play and to be silly. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that because people don't play enough. People don't dance enough. People don't just let their guard down enough to be silly. So how do you make sure that you institute that in your life? I mean, it helps. And I have a partner who has a six-year-old, so we play all the time. (laughs) And man, you can watch, you can learn a lot from kids. They love to play. And I think that you get to a certain point where like, okay, I'm an adult. I don't play anymore. Like I just like don't subscribe to that at all. Some of my best ideas come when I'm like not taking anything seriously. And I think like something my partner and I do, like we talk understanding that we're probably not going to get to the the nitty gritty of the idea until we talk for a while. Mm. So many people are are just on the hunt for such didactic sort of like, this is the answer. And like, that's just all the really wonderful, beautiful, cool, imaginative ideas. They went through a whole slew of just like trial and error and maybe this and maybe that. And what if, what about this? And, you know, nuance and intricacy is like what makes a human a human. So I think play is really involved there. I also think play can teach you a lot about failure. I think failure is a, is a really beautiful, beautiful lesson and something I'm always trying to think about. Like how many times like I'm, oh man, I have like a gratitude journal for like, how many times did you fail today? That's so important to me to fail. It's so important to me. And so many people are scared of it, but it's, it's how you become okay with things not working out. And I feel like that's 90% of success. Totally. I mean, that's being in the kitchen too. There's a lot of fucking failure in the kitchen. Oh my God. That's where most of it happens. And like, like, I just feel like whoever created shoe pastry, that was a mistake. I feel that so many yummy, yummy things were probably a failure. What is it? Like um, away luggage, that story. That's like a great story. She's like running to the airport and her luggage breaks. And she's like, what? yeah, like, gosh, we can't come up with something better. Like, really? And then she did. And now it's like, away luggage, you know? I know. Everybody wants to find their away luggage. Yes. <laughs> yes, they do. They do. But I feel like when you're looking for purpose, and purpose is an essential element of wellness, is, if you're me, purpose, so much about finding it is is really experience, you know, like experiencing life and like, you know, my partner and I are like, what, how do we, we walk across the Williamsburg bridge all the time. Cause it's just something for us to do. We have this thing. We like want to get as many steps in on a Saturday or Sunday as we can. And so like, we just decided we're going to do it backwards. It was funny because while we were doing it, there were a lot of other people that, that started doing it with us. <laughs> and it was like, infectious. Yeah. It was like, well, cause it's like, God, it's like, what, what are we doing today? You know, it's like, there's so much we can't do this pandemic. So I just, I just urge people kind of think a little differently and, and get the word like weird 
out of your head. Some of the most beautiful literature in the world is mythology. You know, like I think we just want to make things make sense too much and it's, and it's okay. And that me included, like I love to get to the bottom of things. I'm a very suspicious woman. I think it's, it's okay for the answer to just not really be an answer. Yeah. So how did, how did wellness really kind of sprout from your imagination? Like what took you so deep into the wellness path? Well, I got really sick in my twenties. Actually, when I was in Miami, I got really sick. I I was able to get through it, but it kind of made me like obsessed with like what I eat to like almost like actually obsessed, very orthorexic. Like it was dangerous. It was not good. And that was back when like, there was no like Hugo Fresh, like juice press. There was none of that stuff. It was Jack LaLanne juicer. Like that's it. (laughs) And like weird, nasty, like alfalfa sprout sandwiches, which like, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't care. Like that's nasty. I'm not eating that. But I got into this in the culinary space because it was me just sort of being like money-minded. That's what people wanted. People wanted, a lot of people were interested in going vegan. A lot of people wanted that like plant-based kind of stuff. So I, I mean, I like went hard with it. I was like taking classes. I took all these Matthew Kenny courses. I was doing everything that I could to like learn as much about that because I started to realize like people want gluten-free cooking. I want to be the person right. to do it. And so like, that was like part of my sort of like business model as a private chef. Like if, if you are a house with allergies, like I got you. And that spawned from being ill? Sort of. I think it spawned from me being in Miami, which is this like so many body conscious minded people. Like I had kind of already gotten over, you know, my sickness and, and, and sort of my own like, okay, so I understand like you can obsess about what you eat, but like bitch, you love a steak, like throw down, like relax. (laughs) So it really became what clients wanted and what people were looking for. And I, I just wanted to, to have something that felt a little different, you know, like I wanted to to offer something that wasn't like the run of the mill. Like how the hell am I going to set myself apart? I'm just this young 24 something. So the wellness part was really, it was really kind of like a, a fiscal decision for me. Like I could, this could help me out. And then through that, I did. I mean, I, I was vegan for so long. Oh my God, so long. Just also by proxy of like who I was cooking for. Like I'm not cooking vegan food for vegan clients and like, you know, like it's like the association of it. Now that I am not a vegan anymore, but the wellness aspect in there, I don't love that word since the commodification of wellness and wellness has become less about wellness and more about self-optimization. Now I like to use the word welfare. I think that's a better word. And that's something that I consider myself more kind of concerned with than necessarily wellness. Yeah. So you self-describe yourself as a food and feelings advocate. Tell me about how that came to you because it is absolutely what you are. (laughs) It is the importance of feelings. They're so valuable. I don't want to say that they're facts. Sometimes, uh, you know, your feelings that you you feel them unjustly and they're not correct necessarily, but it's so important to give them room and give them space. I spent more than half my life really ignoring them because I could, I just didn't have the privilege to really feel them. So I feel like it's so important to give yourself space to feel your feelings in whatever they are. The more we are, it's like such a weird time. We withhold so much. We just keep so much inside. And I have so many friends that are like, you know, life is really hard, but I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to say anything because there's so many people doing worse than me. I'm like, what? No, allow yourself to feel them. Feelings also, while they might not be facts, they give you a lot of direction. They protect you if you allow them. We're born with this intuition. Like we're born with feelings. We have them when we're born. And I believe that we're all born excellent. I truly believe that. So I think we all need to go back to feelings being a part of our self-care. I put cry time in my calendar, no joke. 
That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I like schedule. <laughs> like I like crying is so important. I feel so guys crying is 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 literally next to an orgasm for me. I never don't feel better afterwards. I might not feel great. I might not feel resolved, but I always feel better. I want to, of course, talk about counter space. And I love this quote that I read that says, I always want to make it very clear that the show is not about me. I am a show steward. I am a story steward. It's not about me. It's about we. It's a collective show and a very community-driven show. So what was the impetus? Like, how was this very important show born? Well, food is news. We all need it to survive. With the, none of us are, are, are good without food. We've got to have it. Like Michael Pollan says, we're the only species that cooks. So I feel like it's it's very important for it to be treated that way. I'm also a Black person that lives in a body that knows what it's like to not have it, to not experience like a full belly when I wanted it. And so I'm very passionate about it, but I'm not the only person with that experience. And I also have this absolute obsession with where we get things and how they work. Like I'm obsessed. I am obsessed. Value chain, supply chain. Yeah. You know, 60% of the food that we get in this country comes from somewhere else. Like, what do you mean? Yeah. Like I'm obsessed with that. Vice definitely already had the sort of concept together. I think they knew that they wanted to do it. How we were going to do it, that's a whole nother combo because like it is a pandemic and and people should know the entirety of the show was filmed during the pandemic. I mean, it's gnarly. So it was like really, really, really tough. I felt like Vice is kind of a good place for it because it's very different and so like not what is normally out there. And like Vice is a good place for that, of course. It's not just a show about coffee, a show about China. It's about like, okay, a show about like there's protest. We have like an insect episode. Two billion people globally already eat insects. Like, why don't we eat them here in America? You know, like it just asks these interesting questions all under the guise of a really big umbrella. The big umbrellas, climate change, environment, supply chain, pollution, greenhouse gases, hunger. I mean, these are such big things and we really want black and white answers for them. And the answers for these things are just as nuanced and just as intricate as anything else. And that's why the format of the show is, I think, really cool. It's just four separate, complete sort of segments. And also like me in the kitchen, less about me. It's really more about like, okay, China, Hong Kong protest food. How do I as a consumer feel connected to that? You probably don't unless you're in China, have been to China or you're Chinese. However, we can make this dish and you can make it at home. And now you can feel really connected to this story in this place. We need each other. We all need each other. And I think that that's the kind of the message we were trying to give with the show. Do you feel as though the pandemic and Black Lives Matter and you really having a voice, do you feel like you stepped into this like teacherly education role on your social media? You had so much to say and you did not hold back. So many people learned from you. So I'm curious if you feel as though that really led you to, to this place and having this show right now. Yeah, my whole life was, was uh, prepared me for this show. There are a lot of really great and talented people out there, but there's nothing like standing in line for a turkey at a food pantry and not getting it because you were late and you didn't get it and you go to bed hungry. Like that's, that's a reality. You know, there's nothing like standing in line, 300 people line at the, at the social security office. There's nothing like your mom getting arrested because she has a drug problem. My mom didn't need to be arrested for a drug problem. She needed rehab. 
you know, nobody has thousands of dollars, you know, it's like this show, it's like, I had to do it. That's how I feel about it, you know? And so like, yes, there are a lot of other things and in the, in the recent that prepared me for the show, but to even like learn about who I was took so much work. I don't know who my dad is. I I mean, it took me so much work to even like find my grandmother, like know about my family. Like I literally like don't know who I am in a lot of ways. And so I guess like, yeah, there are many things that were far in the past and in the recent that prepared me for a show like this. And there really is not any other show like it for sure. That's incredible. And I'm so proud of you. And I've watched three episodes and I'm excited to watch the whole season. But can you talk a little bit about Pillow Talk Sessions on Instagram? Yeah. So Pillow Talk, the start of that was actually way pre-pandemic. So the thing is, is like you do all these panels, you do all these conversations, you know, and you talk and you go up there and you, you talk with like a lot of other cool people, but like the, the most compelling stuff kind of happens after. And that's when I really get to connect with people. And so I just wanted to be able to like say, I just want to do my own thing. I want to have my own events where I bring in people that I respect. Look at meet my amazing florist, Robin. I want everybody to have their moment. I just, Oh my God, I would have done anything for a moment at 15, like anything, anything to just like go to bed with like what I wanted. Oh my God, I would have done anything. So I just like, I'm an equity officer. Like, what do you need? Tell me how it happened for you. Like, that's like my shit. So the pill talks that it's just a place where now it's digital because of the pandemic, but it's a place where it gets to like, be like, how, where, what's it like in Tucson and what do you need there? You know? And, and people, they light up when you ask them what they need. Oh man. If you ever want to like get someone to talk, that's like a great. Yeah. I love that. So your writing is beautiful and pulls you in emotionally. You're such a sharer and an advocate. How do you replenish yourself when you feel depleted? You're constantly sharing, you're, you're on a lot, whether it's on your social media, on Instagram Live, yeah. a show, you know, there's a lot of chaos, I would imagine, in your world. So how do you carve out time for yourself to make sure that you have some restorative time to fill the emotional cavity again? Yes, yeah, tough. I'm still working on that. <laughs> So yeah. I mean, I will say my job is great. I get a lot of joy from it. So that's really cool. And also the second thing, my job really like isn't about me in a lot of ways, which is also great. So it doesn't, it's not such a suck because it's, my job is like, I get to do research on this amazing person. That's like amazing, you know? So that's cool. I do things like walk across Williamsburg Bridge backwards. <laughs> you know, I watch a lot of old movies. I read a lot of books, like a lot of Rosalind Russell films. I, I do yeah. all the other hyphenates, like all the hyphenate things. Like I, you know, I decide I'm going to skateboard and I fucking do it. And I make cool stuff with my friends. I think that replenishment also, if you're me, looks like real good relationships with solitude. I spent most of my life alone. So like sometimes my relationship with solitude is like a little too good. My friends are like, all right, so you got to come there sometime. I'm on a lot, but I also like disappear a lot. I, I do. I'll just completely just like fall off. I also like can't write and also do A through Z things and spend my spare time doing like just doing things I'm really shitty at. Yeah. I force myself to do the things I'm shitty at. <laughs> I don't have to. Sometimes you got to lead with that. <laughs> lead with what yeah. you want to do. <laughs> so everyone that comes on the podcast, I ask two things. The first one is the greatest hurdle that they've had to overcome. Something that has greatly challenged you 
a roadblock or anything that got in your way and, and how you navigated through it. So the greatest hurdle is like this deserve word, deserve. That's like a really tidy struggle with that. I, I Something I might want, oh, you do not deserve that. Like what does this, I'm, I'm always sort of challenged with this word and I've been challenged with it my whole life. Like it's, let, let's, I mean, deserve is the umbrella for that is worth. I don't feel like I deserve it, right? Like my it's yeah. thing. Does that come up for you a lot, that feeling? All the time. I've in consistent imposter syndrome. I mean, full transparency, Athena, I was like, why in the fuck does she want me on this podcast? <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> like fully, like I'm, I'm that. I'm, I'm, I'm like oh, me and Naomi Watts got about as much in common as like oh. a giraffe in Africa, and like <laughs> I mean, I don't like I what? I was like, what? But she feels the same way. She <laughs> feels exactly the same way. That's the thing. Isn't that funny? And that's why these conversations are so important to have. It's just so important. And you know what? I think that we have to have gratitude maybe yeah. around that feeling like we never deserve something because it propels us. It makes us curious. It pushes us. Oh man, beyond the pale. As the crow flies, I can promise right down the middle, whatever happens, there is a moment where I'm like, I don't deserve this. <laughs> and when, you know what? But it does make me really good at when bad things happen. I'm like, oh, of course. <laughs> so that's like kind of weird and helpful when you're trying to do something new, because when you do something new, shit never works out. So like, I'm, I'm good with things not working out. Yeah. I am like a real emotional, I'm emotional when I'm sad, I'm sad, but I know how to deal with it. Like I, I have really a great set of tools, but I definitely struggle with the, the biggest hurdle is like deserve imposter syndrome. I've basically made best friends with it at this point. Like I got to know that no matter what I do, I am always going to deal with that, but I got to like, it's my job. I got to get up and do it anyway. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what cooking was for me for a while. Like that, what the fuck am I doing here? I have nothing to say. It was like, let me just get in the kitchen because I can hide Mm -hmm. with being busy. That's a really great place for it. I think that there's one place where you can ever just feel like you can truly be yourself. It's in your kitchen. I mean, come on. it's it's, It's the thing you need to survive. And there you are doing it for yourself. It's awesome. I actually read this morning in the New York Times cooking that said something like we're exhausted by anxiety and grief and employment worries and childcare issues and food insecurity. And like the one thing that can help is cooking. It's amazing. For a second, I tell people all the time, people are like, well, what do you love to cook? And you're like, when you're going through it and when it's this perpetual stew, oh man, you want to like just anything that takes forever, like a stew or a sauce or a thing that just takes forever and it's slow and slow and you nurse it. It's what you're saying yourself. So when you see yourself doing it for yourself, it can do so much for you. You know, like that, that, that amount of attention, the attention we give risotto, Jesus Christ, if we all give ourselves that <laughs> nurturing, the way we nurture a bowl of rice, get out of here. Oh my God. Do you want to hear something hilarious about risotto, which is like, it's a mirror for my child's personality. (laughs) My son never wants to put like the long amount of time that needs to be applied to risotto or much of life. He always wants like the quickest, most direct route. And last year for Christmas, we made risotto and he was the one that was stirring it. He was like, mom, there has got to be a fucking better way. Like this is bananas. So he goes, he looks at me and I see this like little light bulb in his head go off and he runs upstairs to the tool closet. He comes down with a power drill, a wooden spoon, 
and tape. He tapes the wooden spoon to the power drill and he fucking drilled his way with the spoon spinning for the next 20 minutes because he was like, this is just not okay. There is no way that we have to sit here and nurse this for this long. And he figured out a way. So good. So that's him being revolutionary. That is king shit problem solving. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay. So the next question I ask everyone on the podcast is this moment, this catalyst, this specific moment where you felt either embraced by yourself or embraced by community surrounding you for making an unconventional career choice. Like when you stood in, I am instead of Amma with a question. So I stand in, I am. And then like, I changed my mind. <laughs> so then like, I'm, very, like I, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here. And then I'm not, I allow myself to ebb and flow um, because that's like what works best for me in terms of embrace. You know, I don't know and can't ever know if everybody will embrace me. And in fact, it seems really silly and like really the silliest thing I'll ever say, but I truly believe that I'm gonna change the world one day. I really believe that. And the people that have cannot concern themselves with what people think about them and concern themselves with this idea of like people liking me and and peers. And I I can't, I, I can't imagine that bell hooks or Angela Davis, or Martin Luther King, or Obama, or Michelle Obama, really give a rat's ass if everybody agrees with them or likes what they're doing. They, right down the middle, have their purpose in mind, collective in mind, we in mind, and they and they change the world with it, you know? And so I just, I wake up some, da- some days and I'm like, I know who I am. I know who I am. I got this. And then I look at my phone and then I'm like, no, I don't. Wait, what? What day is it? I don't know anything. I'm an idiot. But shit, I've got an appointment at 10 o'clock. I'm going to go to it. <laughs> like, I walk in rooms and I have no idea why I'm there. And then I remember that it, it doesn't matter. It's not about me. Since when am I like a genius also? Like since when do I know everything? You know, like I know I've got a purpose and that's what it is. I don't, it doesn't need to make sense to me. It just needs to, be, to make sense to the, the, like the globular sort of umbrella. Like I am the first to admit there are, I feel like everybody goes through that. Like there are days where I'm like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Yeah. Purpose is in mind. And I just keep that in mind. And that's, that's like what I have to do. And I I think that I don't, you know, Athena, I don't think it will ever be different because of of my upbringing. I think I'll just, I'll consistently sort of have to ebb and flow with that. Mm. Oh my goodness. Okay. So what's next and how are you going to change the world? Okay, what's next? I don't know. I'm moving tomorrow. I'm, I go granular, Athena. I go real small. What's next is like 2 p.m. Like, <laughs> I go real small. It's the best way to be. Yeah. I have a hard time living it, but it's the best way to be. <laughs> I make myself a grain of sand. How am I going to change the world? I don't know yet, but I just know I want to. And not like in a weird, like, I'm the best, I'm going to change the world, but like, because I can't think of anything more important than people. That's the most, they're the most important thing in the world. And we need each other. We're like fungus. We exist in a network. We're like this mycelium. We talk to each other and we don't even realize it. People impact us without our knowledge every single day, every single day. We're at a stoplight and the person, the light turns green and they don't go. We honk. That person has impacted us, you know, like we need each other. And so I, I want to, I just, whatever I can do to get people back there 
to like remembering we need each other. So I think so much dichotomousness. And I also have to remember that changing the world means I got to change the world for everybody. I can't only be concerned with people that like me or people that are like me. I have to also work for, it's like food advocacy. I have to make sure that everybody has food, even people they hate. I want them to have food too. So what's next is like just finding ways to create more equity, giving people what they need, asking people, I want everybody sharing their story. I want everybody to feel like they have a platform to share their story and want to make people know how much they matter. That's beautiful. Well, you impact me so much and you've impacted so many. And I just want to thank you for your generosity and for coming and chatting with me. Are you kidding? This is great. I wish I could do it. You saved me from some other shit I would have had to do. <laughs> this is a good thing. So, oh my goodness. No, this is awesome. That was Sophia Rowe, food and feelings advocate, wellness expert, television host, an extraordinary chef. Thanks for tuning in to More Than One Thing. Stay tuned for new episodes on Wednesdays and be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening now. If you enjoyed today's show, I would be so grateful if you could take a moment to rate and review us. And I'd also love your feedback. Which multi-hyphenates would you like to hear on the show? Send guest suggestions or any other feedback to More Than One Thing podcast at gmail.com. And be sure to check us out on our newly launched Instagram account, More Than One Thing Podcast. And you can find me personally on social at iSwoon. If you would like to receive the More Than One Thing newsletter, please head over to i-swoon.com and sign up for the newsletter. I'm Athena Calderon, and you've been listening to More Than One Thing.